0: Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into Scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big-girl pants, because here we go. All right, here we go. Verse 37 through 39 says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so I wanna review just a little bit. The great day, right? The great day of what? The Feast of Tabernacles, we've talked about it that on that week, that celebration, Josephus says, you've never even experienced joy if you've never experienced the Feast of Booths. That I, of all the feasts, I would have loved to have been present for this one. So they've been camping out in their booths for a week, and they have been reminded of the wilderness wanderings in those booths, and they have seen the Temple Mount lit up ablaze and all the light coming through all the courtyards of the city of Jerusalem. And they have also experienced the amazing water libation where the high priest would take the golden vessels and the parade would come down from the Temple Mount all the way down through the city of David to the Gion Spring, to the Pool of Siloam, and they would fill up the golden vessels and they would come back with instruments playing and singing and dancing. I can imagine the eyes of the children as they watched this, and they would go all the way back up to the Temple Mount and they would pour that water. They'd be singing Psalm 118, but they would pour the water on the base of the altar and remember the fact that God had provided um, the pillar of light, right, the pillar of fire, but that he had provided water from the rock. Well, on the last day, they would come up and they would do something a little different. At that point, they would walk around the altar seven times. I think we talked about this last week a little bit. The fact that that was the end of the wilderness wanderings. Because when the wanderings ended, they came into the promised land and what was the first thing they had to face? Jericho. So how did they defeat Jericho? God defeated Jericho. He asked them to walk around seven times and when they did, the walls came down. And scripture says more people died from the falling of the walls than by the sword. And it was God's city, the first fruits. That's why they were never to rebuild it, all right? And so this represents the end of the wilderness wanderings and they would pour out this water and the high priest would get up, there'd be a hush. And it was at this moment that Jesus said this. And it says that he said it in a loud voice. That literally means right under (laughs) scream, all right? And for him... That was different, okay? Jesus was, uh, he had a soft voice. He taught, but at this, he was proclaiming. And during that time, he stood up and he says this, if anyone, did you hear that word? Anyone means what? Anyone. If anyone thirsts, that's recognition. That's recognition that you have a need. That's humility. I thirst." If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and what? And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Man, John 6 and 7 and into 8 are amazing. The whole time John is making them remember their forefathers' experience in the wilderness with God, their experience with God. In chapter six, we went back to the Passover and he he remembers manna and Jesus says what? I am the bread of life and how will that be? It's a sacrifice, my flesh, you have to apply it. You eat my flesh and drink my blood. He comes to the Feast of Tabernacles, and you have the water libation, and on the day after, we're going to see that, right? The day after, he steps up, and he says, basically, he's saying, I am the living water. He's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and from his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we're going to see in the next chapter um, that he is going to talk about that he is the light of the world, okay? We're gonna get there, but they're all remembering. In verse 39, it says this. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Go to John chapter 12, verse 23 through 26. We're gonna be all over our Bibles today. John twelve twenty three through 26, says this. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we're, what does it mean when he says the Son of Man had not yet been glorified? So here it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he's saying, this is the hour that I'm going to be glorified, and then he refers to his what? His death, okay? So we know that his death his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. When that happened, the Holy Spirit was released at Pentecost, okay? But he is also talking, I want you to see this. So he's talking about his death, and he also refers to the fact that we're going to be called to die to our own life. But look what he says. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. I want you to see the comparison with that in chapter seven, where we just were, 733, what he said to the Pharisees. In 733, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me, right? So his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension to the Father, and he says, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Do you see the contrast between those? The one we just said said this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Such a contrast. Um, Look at 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, who is the testimony given at the proper time. When the hour came, he was the testimony given. He was the ransom given for all. He died, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was glorified. After that, the Holy Spirit will be sent." Look at Hebrews 10, 20. I'm gonna read 19 too. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. They need to understand something, right? Jesus was bringing salvation through his death. There is only one mediator between God and man. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How? By the sacrifice of my flesh. It also says that when he did that, when he died on the cross, his flesh was like the veil And when he died, the veil that separated man's access into a holy God was split from top to bottom, allowing us to enter into the presence of God through Christ Jesus. And so we all know this, right? Then the last one I want you to see just in reference is 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So through Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, through his death and resurrection on the cross, he paid our penalty, allowing us to come into the presence of God, and once glorified, sent the Holy Spirit into us, and we literally have been given a divine access to a divine nature. I put it this way, the Spirit of God within the people of God. Now, how is that measured? Galatians 5 tells us how it's measured. What is the nature of God? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the measuring stick of the divine nature. And that is acted out, do you realize? In community. That's why I referred to the other day, I read something that I thought was I'm not going to overanalyze it, but it talked about how in the Western, in our Western culture, we often say my personal relationship with Jesus. And and we kind of know what we mean, but sometimes it does become that. Just my personal relationship with Jesus. And uh, the book I was reading was talking about, no, our relationship with Jesus is to be active. It's actually to be communal. Because the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts that we've been given are to be for the body of Christ, right? And so they were suggesting a better word, and don't overanalyze this, but the better word is an intimate relationship with Jesus. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus, but it is acted out as the body of Christ. It is really communal to be acted out. Um, It's definitely not to be kept gaining knowledge to be puffed up, right? But to serve in the community. Um, I want you to see Revelations 22 because I think it's a beautiful picture. And I think it ties in um, to what we have where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, we know that to be the Spirit of God flowing out of us, okay? But look at Revelation 22. Verse one, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree, were for the healing of the nation. Do you see the beauty of that connection in us? He says, "If you're thirsty, come and drink. I am salvation." And when you do, your heart will well up to be rivers of living water. In Revelation 22, the river of living water fed the tree of life that produced fruit, and it also says, "And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nation." The Holy Spirit wells up inside of us as living water that becomes rivers flowing out of us, not just for us, but for the healing of the nations. And I think this is the point of um, Revelations chapter 3 when we get to the city of Laodicea. I just want to show you a little connection there, okay? So go to Revelations chapter 3, and it's in verse 14. Of three, and I think this section of scripture is very misunderstood, especially by young people. Okay, and so I'm going to talk about the the picture here. Okay, so it says in verse 14, "And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation." Verse 15, it says this. that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and a salve to anoint your eyes that sh- so you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne <clears throat> as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I, I think very often when we read that, <clears throat> we read it with this idea that it is talking about um, our zeal for God in a way that we are either on fire for God or we are cold, okay? Okay? But that's not what the analogy said, because if you look at it that way, he says, I wish you would be either cold, hot, or cold. So in this analogy, it is not one is good and one is bad. It is that both are what? Both are good. Okay, so, so don't look at it in the context of being on fire for God or being hot uh, or being cold for God. He say, this is what he is saying. It is, it's not an issue of zeal. It's an issue of being double-minded. It's actually an issue of your effectiveness. It's not an issue of your salvation, okay? You're not gonna be spit from his mouth. You're not gonna lose your salvation. Not too long ago, I just read you the scripture that says all that the Father has given me, I will not lose a one of them, okay? But this is talking about effectiveness and he's teaching it in the perfect location. Because in Laodicea, let me make sure I get my directions right. North of Laodicea was a town called Heropolis. And it was known for their hot springs. Okay? And then to the south was Colossae. And they were known for their cold springs. Okay? Both are good. Both are for the healing of the nations. Hot springs, Right? heals the body it soothes you use hot water for teas for soups it is healing to the body soothing cold springs same brings down inflammation it's good for you it's refreshing it, have you ever jumped in an ice bath athletes do both do you realize that for their bodies zach used to go from one to the other he would go cold bath, hot bath, cold bath, hot bath. It's for the healing of the nation. So the idea is both of these are good. But the issue is, these were the springs, okay, that fed Laodicea. And they the aqueducts would bring the water. Well, the further away you got from the actual spring that fed the hot water or the cold spring that fed these cold pools, the further away from it that you got, it became what? Lukewarm. And he's just giving an example of, how would you like me to hand you a cup of coffee? That's lukewarm. What do you wanna do the minute you put it in your mouth? Because that's not what it was intended to be, okay? It has lost its usefulness. So he is saying, listen, you have become double-minded in your comfort you have fallen away from the source. And because you have fallen away, you have neglected the source, you are neither hot nor cold, meaning you are neither soothing and healing or refreshing. You've lost your usefulness. And that's what he is saying. The comfort of the world. The world has called you and you've become double-minded and you've neglected the spring. And because of that, The rivers of living water that have flown up, forming rivers for the healing of the community, you have lost your youthfulness. And then what does he say to them? It's not about your salvation. He says, so come back. I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come in and be with him and communicate with him and fill him up. And so that is the picture he is saying, come to me. When you come to me, I am the living water. When you come to me and you know you thirst, drink. Because when you drink from me, not only will you be saved, but it will well up inside of you rivers of living water for the community, for healing and for refreshment. Stay connected to the spring. Open the door. Sit down and communicate with me. And that—that that is what... That is what this is for. It flows out of him through us into other people. In good times and bad times, to be quite honest. And that is the picture. Do y'all remember that song? Uh, I've been living, Laodicea. And the fire that once burned bright, I've let it grow dim. And the very word I swore that I would die for now has been forgotten since the world's become my friend. And I've been living in Laodicea. I'm going to tell you, one of the worst things that can happen to believers is comfort. We lose our effectiveness because we become double-minded. We end up being filled by the things of the world. And we're neither being hot, healing, or cold, refreshing, because we've stepped away from the very source. In the celebration, along the way, they have remembered God's provision. They're remembering a time when their forefathers wandered in the wilderness by living in these booths. They're remembering a time when they lived in the tents before they entered the promised land. Even back then, their own temple. Do you remember what it was? A tent. It was called the tabernacle. And wherever they went, it went. It was temporary. In John 1.1, it says what? That God tabernacled among them. We find out that Jesus, the one who put on flesh, tabernacled among his people to offer the true promised land. And by the way, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, Abraham, when he was called to leave his country and travel to a land that he did not know, it said that he actually was looking forward to a city whose foundation was God. And so this temporary idea. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, Paul describes his body as a tent. It is temporary. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Well, let's read that one because I sure love it and I need to hear it today. 1 Corinthians 15. Why in the world would we ever skip such a beautiful section of scripture? So let's read it. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We are in a temporary tent. And I'm gonna tell you what, we won't all sleep. We won't. Well, I don't know about we, but in general, we. There will be some who do not die, right? Zachary is experiencing life after death. But one day, he will experience life after life after death. Because he will return, I think N.T. Wright said that, he will return and he will receive a glorified body with DNA that is recognizable as Zachary Hoffpower. And I love that we are tabernacling. We are. This is not our home. It is our temporary dwelling. And we are looking forward to a promised land. So we need to learn this just like them. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And we have a job to do, do we not? Our purpose is to glorify God and to allow these streams of living water to flow out of us into a community for their healing and their refreshing, to introduce them to Jesus. What a beautiful picture. And then we come to verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Don't you just want to knock him out sometimes? Do you ever just get sick of him or am I the only one? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arrives from Galilee. Oh, my word. I mean, what can he do? Okay. I mean, they just saw the most amazing, beautiful analogy anyone who thirsts standing right there. Come to me and drink, and your heart will become rivers of living water. (laughs) And they begin to argue, it creates division. There's still division. And uh, Galilee is still the sticking point. Still the sticking point. But then they go on to say, but wait a minute. Doesn't the Messiah come from the family of David and Bethlehem? What do we know? He did come from the family of David. He was born in Bethlehem. And who had this information? The religious leaders had that information but they couldn't get past the whole issue of Galilee. I think it is funny that it says that they, some sought to arrest him, but they couldn't lay their hand on him. Right. And I'm gonna tell you, we need to understand that too. As God's children, nothing can lay its hand on me that is not first God filtered. But I know that he is in control. In his sovereign allowance, he allowed it. He will be with me through it and he will use it for my good and his glory. Does my peon brain truly understand that really at times? No, but I trust it. They could not arrest him because his hour had not yet come and he is in control. Nobody took his life from him. He laid his life down as the perfect sacrifice. It says, um, they go, why did you not arrest him? And they go, because nobody has ever spoken like this man. Can you imagine how offensive Like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're a bunch of schmucks. We've been teaching you all this time. Like, they were so mesmerized by his teaching, they couldn't even approach him. And they're like, oh, my goodness, have you also been deceived? Do you see any of us, the educated ones, the smart ones, do you see any of us following him? What does this tell you? Don't you hate that attitude? We still have that attitude in this world today. Well, do any PhDs really believe in Jesus? You know, it's for these lowly, dumb Christians. I don't know. I just love Jesus. I have faith. Wrong. There are many, many, many PhDs, my dad being one of them, who absolutely believes in Jesus, because there is all kinds of logical reason for the faith and the hope we have in Christ Jesus. But we have this whole academic world that feels like, oh, but the wisest of us, this is such a crutch. This is just so below us. No, that's why the Bible says what? He didn't give this information to the wise, but to the child, to the simple. And so they're like, really? You're mesmerized by this man? Do you see any of us falling for this? A matter of fact, then they talk about the crowds. It says uh, the crowd, it says this crowd is being basically sucked in. What does it say? Hold on, I'm gonna read it. In verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In our language, how would you say that? This idiot crowd is just under a spell. They are being so conned and sucked in by this man. Are, do any of the sm, are any of the smart people doing this? No. And then comes who? Nicodemus. Now listen, it's not the strongest thing I've ever seen anybody say, but can you imagine? He basically stood up for Jesus. In this, I mean, the teacher of the group looks and says, but wait a minute. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus, man, he is, he is coming to Jesus. Is he already there? We know he gets there, but he speaks up for Jesus, and they reply, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Basically, what they're saying is, are you, like Galilee to them is like my people, okay? Are you a redneck too? Are you from the backwoods too? Like, seriously, these people, you know, sometimes you go to a certain place, if you have a southern accent, they just think you're dumb. Okay, not so, right? But they're like, really? Those people? You think, what? Check and see, no prophet has come from Galilee. Now, I don't think they could have really meant that literally. Could they? Because I can think of two prophets that came from Galilee one, Jonah, okay? Jonah, I think I wrote down where he was from. Hold on. So that y'all are real smart. Jonah is from Gath Heifer. G-A-T-H slash H-E-P-H-E-R, which is a border town in the region of Galilee. Okay? Also, there is Nahum, who was from a place called Elkosh, That was changed, they believe, was the same town as Capernaum. And the city Capernaum literally means city of Nahum. So were they being literal, that check and see? Well, if not, man, they made a serious faux pas because two prophets were from Galilee for sure, maybe another. Or were they just saying in general, seriously, you really think the prophet is going to come from the, you know, The backwoods, I don't think so. And so they basically slam him. Man, they're getting irritated. Why are they getting irritated? Why do people get irritated like this? The loss of control. Nothing is working. They can't trap him. The crowd, there may be division, but people are following him. They're seeing it. They send people to arrest them. They come back empty-handed. We've never heard anybody speak like that. And now they have the teacher speaking up. I mean, they're out of their mind. Verse 53. Okay, I'm gonna read verse 53, and then I'm gonna read one through three, and I'm gonna address that together, okay? Do any of your Bibles have that group like that? Okay. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and, and placing her in the midst, okay? Now, look at your Bible. How many of your Bibles say uh, this might, wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts? Does that bug you? Don't let it, okay? So there's debate on whether this actually is a part of John, if it fits right here. But in the levels of um, people's confidence, it's it's if you research it, it's marked an A. Okay. So there is debate over it. But I also want you to recognize because we have looked at chapter five, six, seven in a row. And if you remember, there's kind of um, a pattern. What happens is there'll be an incident, right? Some incident, like a healing or something. And then there's a sermon. And then what comes next? Another incident. And then he gives a sermon. And then there's an incident. And then he gives a sermon. And it's kind of a pattern in in this Johannine literature, okay, John's literature. And if you remove this, you would break the pattern. So that is one of the reasons that they have kept it in there because it fits the Johannan pattern, okay? So I just thought I would address it and you can investigate it and debate it, but it's in there, okay? And so we're gonna look at it. It says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've never been to Israel, the Mount of Olives is just east of basically the city of Jerusalem. It's just east of the Temple Mount. So if you have the Temple Mount here, you have the Mount of Olives just east of it, and in between, you have the Kidron Valley, all right? And so if you have the Mount of Olives here and the Temple Mount here, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the lower right-hand side of that. You have the most beautiful um, view from the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. It is the most beautiful place. And the, uh, the Mount of Olives is important Think about all the things. He taught there. He did the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24. Uh, He prayed there. We know that. What else happened there? He was betrayed there. He will ascend from there. And according to the prophets, he will come back and put his foot there. So it's very important. So exactly where did he go on the Mount of Olives? Well, we don't know. We don't know if he camped. He could have camped out, or if he went to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, because Bethany is just right on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So I tend to think he went to their house. That's what I tend to think. He comes in for the feast. You stay with your family and friends, and they were like family to him, and he stayed with them at their house. Um, I wrote down, let us not forget, Jesus didn't have a home. He didn't. He tabernacled among us. This idea of a tent, temporary. He tabernacled among us. He didn't have a home. You remember when the rich young man wanted to follow him? And he said, you better think about it. (laughs) That reminds me of my son. He Every time he would do, because I would tell him when he was about to do something bad, I go, Zachary, you better think about it. And so when he was little, every time he would look up about something, he'd go, you better think about it. Okay? (laughs) So at this point, if you think, he said, you better think about it because, listen, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. This isn't my home. Matter of fact, even his tomb was borrowed. Why? He wasn't gonna need it long, right? Borrowed tomb. I'm out of here in three days. Um, then it says, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. I love that. Early in the morning, he gets up, and he's there. He's waiting. We find out he's actually in the court of the women, uh, where the treasury was, which he's no longer on the porches. He's, He's come more into... The temple, and there he is waiting. And it says, Early in the morning, the people got up and they all came and he taught them. Isn't that what we should do? Do you realize every morning? You know, I always talk about uh, when I teach my Hannah message, I talk about the fact that I'm romantic, and of course, I would love a Hallmark man that every morning I'd get up and he'd be like, Good morning, beautiful, how was your night? You know, and bring me coffee. And I said, you know what? We have something so much better, right? God does not sleep or slumber. He constantly waits for us at night. We sleep, and every morning, from now on, I want you to open your eyes and hear him sing, good morning, beautiful. How was your night? He wants to talk to you. He is always pursuing you in relationship. He got up early that morning. He went in the temple, and he sat down. He was ready to teach, and they showed up. Are you are you showing up every morning? Don't you just, you're like, Lord, please give me. The minute I open my eyes, give me such a relationship with you that I can't wait to talk to you first thing in the morning. Teach me this morning. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. And so they go and they sat down and then these darn Pharisees break up this scene. And so they bring this woman. Hmm, well, by the way, uh, The court of the women, the scribes and the Pharisees would walk through the court of the women to get to the court of men. So this was a great place that he was teaching. And so it says that they travel through this area and then we have this story that we are all familiar with. And I heard a pastor, I think he was with one of the Calvary churches and he described it like this a long time ago, I heard him, it says, this is the tale of two sinners. One is a rank sinner And one is a religious sinner. One is obvious and one is not so obvious. One is overt and one is covert. Ain't that the truth? Here you have these two groups come in, the scribes and the Pharisees, those that are puffed up with their pride, who know all the law but are missed the living word speaking to them, and they bring this sinner and they cast her in front of the crowd. Hmm. Jesus was so gentle with her, they shamed her. I love Romans 2.4, before I start this story, it talks about the fact that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. That took me a long time to understand. It really did. Because I would have told you back in the day, it was the fear of the Lord that brought me down the aisle. <laughs> and it kind of was. I mean, because that's the kind of preaching I grew up with, okay? And hey, there ain't nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying that it was a little bit hellfire and brimstone. And I really, most of the time, I thought God was mad at me. And, um, but I understood the fact that I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. And I could feel the heat on my derriere. So I, I got down the aisle. But I will tell you that the fear, the fear may get you down the aisle. But until you experience the love, that's a whole different ballgame. When you experience the love of God, it is honestly the goodness and the love of God that draws you to repentance of what he has done for you. And it beckons you into relationship. It's not the fear. And so it is the goodness of God. She's about to experience that because I'm gonna tell you what, this is the best example right here of John three nineteen. Do you remember that? He's like, I didn't come to judge the world. He said, matter of fact, this is the judgment that the light has shown. And the judgment will be made in each person. You will either come towards the light, the goodness of God, or you will love the things of the world and you will turn away. Humility, pride. And we're gonna see it because both parties are gonna be convicted in this story. One party will remain with Jesus and the other party will do what? Walk away. All right, so let's look at the story. So they cast her in the midst, and they said to him, verse four, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now on the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Hmm. So she was caught in the very act. Seriously, maybe, maybe you think she might have been set up to be caught in the very act. I don't know, but the fact is, it says um, the law commanded she be stoned, all right? In the Jewish world, there were three biggies. Well, in the Southern Baptist world where I grew up, there were some biggies too. Did y'all have certain biggies on the bulletin board of sins? You do that, you're in trouble. Boy. Uh, But theirs were murder, idolatry, and adultery. And hey, I get it. Because I'm gonna tell you what, when it comes to the standard, sin is sin. You break one of God's laws, you have broken them all. But we all know that certain sins bring with them greater consequences. We know this, right? I know because I've lived it. And um, the fact here, why were they so serious about adultery? Because they should be. Because when that happens, it breaks relationship, which breaks the family which ultimately does what to society? Breaks society. I can tell you that when relationship is broken and family is broken, there is a lot of wreckage that brushes up on shore. I live it every day. I understand the hurt of it. I understand the difficulty of it. It permeates every part of your life and, you, and literally you see why it is painful. It has ripped apart something that should have never been ripped apart. Okay? And and so it is. It is serious. But they're not they're not serious. They're not being authentic in their concern about this adultery. Because to be quite honest, they really don't care about the law right now. What they truly care about is trapping Jesus. So let's look at their motives because that's what they're doing. And For Jesus, this is a lose-lose situation. They're like, oh, we've got him. We have so got him. This is the best trap we have laid yet because really and truly, I don't know how he could ever squirm out of this one. This one is a doozy because if he says kill her, stone her, that's not a very good friend of sinners. Just saying. Not a good friend of sinners. So you're telling me that not too long ago, he says follow me. Take on my yoke. Learn from me. I'm tenderhearted. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm a friend of sinners. Killer, stoner, like that that doesn't work, okay? And so that's going to be a little bit hard. If he says don't, then what has he done? Broken the law of Moses. And then another flip side, if he does say stoner, guess what law he breaks? the Roman law, because they didn't have the right to do capital punishment. I'm telling you, he's in a pickle. And so they set him up. (laughs) Let me tell you something. It was a setup because they hadn't practiced this kind of law in over a 1,000 years. But they were setting him up big. They couldn't even do this under Roman law. And by the way, They weren't even doing it correctly themselves because the law actually said that if you were caught in the act of adultery, who should be stoned? The woman and the man. Well, if they're literally caught in the act, where's the man, right? This whole thing is just a hot mess and they have set him up in this trap. They are using the woman to prove a point. Mm, that's sad. They have no compassion for her. They have no love for her. She is an object. They're treating her like an object. They've thrown her down on the ground because they're gonna use her to prove their point. Man, I hope we don't act like that. They shame her. They do nothing but reveal her. What does the Bible says? Love covers a multitude of sins. The love of God does not strip naked. It covers all through scripture. That's what we do. We don't strip people bare in public in order to shame them to prove any point. And I don't care if it's the point of the law or scripture, that is not how we behave. We don't ever do that. He did not do that. They throw her down. Did you notice that Jesus goes down to where she is? He's sitting teaching, okay, by the way. That's how rabbis taught. He's no longer sitting. He got down and he went and got down on her level. He went where she was and he begins to write in the dust. Now I'm gonna come back to that in just a second. He comes down to her level. As they look down upon her, because aren't they looking down their nose at her? As they look down at her, they begin to see what he is writing in the dust. So as they begin to look down on her in just a sec, they are going to actually not just look down at her, they're going to see evidence of them. They're going to be faced with themselves. Then he stands for his proclamation. I love that. Because when he says what he does, when he says to them, "Um, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's a proclamation. So he gets down on her level. But when he makes the proclamation about her, what is he doing? He's standing up for her, okay? Do you see this almost? it's, It's almost a little glimpse of the issue with Stephen, the first martyr. Do you remember that? Stephen is preaching, they're outraged, and he does get stoned. And he looks up, and when he looks up, he has the vision of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and what is he doing? He's standing. Because I'm gonna tell you before, it says that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did he sit? Because his job was done. But when it came to Stephen, he stood up. Why? Because Saul of Tarsus was standing up for those that are about to stone him, but Jesus was standing up for Stephen and he allowed him to see that. Right here, he immediately gets down on her level. He does not look down his nose at her and he starts to write in the dust. But when he makes the proclamation, he stands up. Okay, he who has no sin cast the first stone and then he goes right back down. And as they're looking down, they are faced with what he writes in the dust. This is the only time we see Jesus write anything in the New Testament, and he chooses to write it in the dust. I love that. I'm going to ponder that a little bit more. I wrote that yesterday, and I thought, hmm, I really like that, because what he was writing wasn't permanent. That's that's kind of mercy on these guys. That means it can blow away. It can change. It's not written permanently. I don't know. That's just a thought I'm going to come back to, but There's even more. So I'm gonna give you some pictures for you to look through. I'm not gonna tie it all up for you, but I'm gonna give you some pictures to study this week in regards to the finger of God writing, okay? Things for you to look at. Let me give you some examples. Okay, last week we looked at an example of this because in Matthew 11, 28 and 30, where it says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Last week, I compared that to Matthew 25. That is not right. I'm going to find it. 23, 4. It says this about the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. I think that is so interesting. Here, Jesus is removing a burden with his finger. Just a little idea, just something for you to think about. Here's another one. Exodus 8, I think verse 16 it's in Exodus 8. You'll have to find it. I think it's verse 16, maybe through 22. Um, it is when in one of the plagues, do you remember the gnats? Okay. Is it? Okay. And it's the gnats and he tells Moses to hit the ground and the dust will become as gnats. And then later on, the Egyptian wizards try to mimic it. Do you remember this story? And they can't and they say, this has been done by the finger of God. I think that's interesting, this judgment, the finger of God, that the dust becomes gnats. Just giving you some, some things that make you go, "Hmm." Um, how about Deuteronomy 9:10, where it literally talks about the fact that what wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone? The very finger of God. So the question is, when he says, "He who is without sin, or if you have, a, if you've not broken any law, go ahead and cast the first stone. Could it be that the same finger that wrote on the tablets was writing them in the dust? I don't know. Things that make you go, hmm. Daniel chapter five. Remember that situation where uh, he finds out—is it Belshazzar? Okay, and there's a hand that comes down with a finger and is writing on the wall about the judgment that is coming. Man, there is some serious power in the finger of God. And here he is on her behalf, writing down in the sand. Okay, but here's the question. Those are just things that make you go, hmm? What did he write? We don't know. Like, we're not told. Okay, could he have written... The law that started writing the Ten Commandments? Yes, he could have. But could it have been a little bit more personal? Maybe so. Uh, maybe he was giving personal examples, their name, and a personal example of a little no, no. Maybe it was the name of a hotel and a date. Maybe it was the name of a website. Uh, I don't know, but I do know that. It's interesting, the Greek verb to write, okay, it literally means to write, but most theologians see that in context with this scripture, that this, it's called, I think that it's pronounced ketagrapho, it may indicate only the action of writing on the ground, but in the overall context, it can also be interpreted as implying that he wrote a counter-accusation. So he might have been, writing their personal situations. So as they're looking down their nose at her, they get a load of them, right? Be very careful. Be very careful pointing out the splinter in your neighbor's eye when you got a big old plank in yours. We have a tendency, people, to project and to get very irate about certain sins that are actually evident in our own lives. And so they see, and when they do, they drop those stones. I think it's interesting that he wrote the law on stone permanent, but he wrote these accusations, possible accusations in the dust. Can they change it? Can they change? Can they come to him? Yes. And you know what else he wrote that's permanent? He wrote your name in the book of life. And that, my friends, is permanent. (laughs) That is not written in the dust. But I want to read you the greatest verse ever that fits in with this section right here. It's gonna blow your mind. Now, do you have all the story? I am uh, anyone who thirsts, let him drink. And your heart will become rivers of living water. And then you have this whole idea of them then, not for the healing of the nation, They're not about the healing of the nation. They throw this woman on the ground and use her as a trap. And then he leans down and he writes in the dust, right? And they're convicted and they walk away. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 13. If Jeremiah did not write 17, 13 under the most beautiful inspiration of where we are in John, I'm telling you, it's perfect. It says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel All who forsake you shall be put to shame. What are we dealing with in this situation with her? Shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. I was like, are you kidding me right now? Let me read that to you one more time, because I don't know if you're a nerd like me, but that gives me the goosebumps. O Lord, the hope of Israel, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the same I am that led you through the wilderness is standing right here. Come and drink. I am the living water. He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Oh, I read that and I thought, oh my. Verse nine. Oh, I'm, I, y'all, I'm six minutes over. What, what are y'all doing? I'm on a roll. Oh my gosh. Hold on. Um, final words. Final words. Okay, so I'll give you some final words for my notes. How about that? Oh, it said, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. We're gonna come back to that, but I love this. They were convicted, obviously. They dropped their stones because they knew they couldn't cast them. They walked away. They didn't come to Jesus, but I thought this was interesting. It says the oldest ones walked away first. Well, of course. I'm like, we've lived longer. We know we're a mess. We've done more things. We're more self-aware. We are not any longer under the facade that we can live up to image. The world has slapped us in the face. Can I get an amen? I'm like over it. You know, even when the 20s, you're trying to prove yourself, the 30s, whatever. By the time you're 50, you're like, whatever. Like me or don't, I'm doing the best I can. Right? And so, but I love that. It says that from the oldest, they walked away, and he was left with her. And you know what? At some point, if you're living for the, the, the image of man or the, the care of man, I'm telling you, all of that will go away. Each one of us will at some point be left alone with Jesus. What, are we, what did we do with Jesus? Jesus. That's what it comes to. I'm going to tell you next week is very gospel oriented because I'm going to tell you what he's going to tell them. You are going to die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins. You cannot come where I am because you're going to die in your sin. And we're going to talk about that. So I've had so much fun with y'all this morning. And don't you love the word of God? I'm telling you what, you could just eat it up. I've given you plenty to study and ponder over for the week. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, so many pictures of all of it are just in my soul today to meditate on. And so God, I I just wanna know you. I want to have an intimate relationship so that the more time I spend with you and this river flows through me, I can be used for the healing of the nations. We lift you up, we worship you. You are the only one true God. And just like you said to them, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at itsmaryshannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.